You ready to knock one out? You ready to knock one out? I thought you were asking me something else. You said that you would like to do podcasts at night, once in a while on the couch. No Instagram live, no cameras in your face. You just want to hang out and have meaningful conversations on the couch. I thought, yeah, I thought you were going to let me know. I was going to be prepared. Well, if you want to have honest and raw conversations, I can't uh, announce that that's what we're going to do or yes, they're going to feel can. very... Yes, you can. For some people, they need to be prepared. You know what I was thinking about today? Hmm. So Today, your day of birth? It is my birthday today. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about when I grew up, there um, were families... And I played with their kids. And I think I was like 9 to 12. These were the wonder years. And I remember thinking, oh, man, my best friend's dad's an alcoholic. Oh, man, like I've never seen them be intimate. They seem unhappy. They were broke. Mom was struggling. Um, Mom was looking for cigarette butts in the gutter because they couldn't afford any. Like her highlight was um, a little chocolate called um, a cup of gold cup of gold in the 80s it was kind of like it's like a little Reese's peanut butter cup and he was a house mover he moved houses and they had seven children and uh, at that time through the lens of a nine-year-old I just thought like their parents are weird and fucked up and blah 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 but now now I well it's not that it's sad I see how the movie was made I can see now as a parent and we're only two years in they had seven kids, and I think their, their oldest was like already, you know, in high school when I was, was hanging out with them. Um, I could see how it happened, how difficult it must have been for the parents raising, you know, seven kids, food stamps, broke, and I, I mean, I don't, I, I don't know how they did it. They didn't have like extended family, and I suddenly have more understanding. And that's just one family. Of course, you know, as you pull back, you start thinking about all the, you know, the, the, <laughs> all the kids that were your friends and their parents. And I don't know, it just gave me this, this like huge revelation on our parents, how hard it must have been for them. Um, the kids that I grew up with, none of their parents were rich. None of them had nannies. None of them had help. They just all just survived i think it also is an indication of a generation that did not have the same access to a lot of the tools and just life decisions that we have now um you know it's it's that idea of like doing the best you can with what you have and I'm not not to say that there's still not families that struggle like that now, but I do think there's a generational shift in just like expectation of, um, you know, what I want my life to look like, how I'm going to live it, what I'm going to do to accomplish that, what I'm going to sacrifice to accomplish that, make sure that that life does look the way and feel the way that I want it to. And if that means, you know, having two kids instead of having seven, for example, um, I just think there's like a big generational shift that I've seen in like our parents' age to us now. Yeah. And I think it was harder for them because they didn't have tools. They didn't have... Well, yeah, a thousand percent it was harder for them. I mean, there were no options. If you don't have tools... 
and one of the biggest tools being self-awareness or like like language around I don't know like what you and I take for granted you know well understanding self understanding self understanding pat- patterns understanding like emotional um, traumas understanding you know all where, this where things come from so basically right. they were they were walking reactions mm-hmm. and and they were um, you know uh, fueled by well not fueled they were numb by alcohol um, working hard because they had to and just raising children so in our book this is the the chapter um titled the american nightmare yeah you know this is um we don't question it back then no well most people our, our our parents followed this blueprint because that was the american dream but or me so now, told. yeah. So you're told, and then me now looking back and pulling the curtain back, I realize it's actually not the dream. It's actually the nightmare. It's burning the candle, you know, on both sides. It's it's uh, losing sense of self. It's drifting in your marriage. It's you know uh, revolving around the children instead of the you know living a life together. They become the sun that you revolve around, and over time, it's you know the it's like that thread in a sweater where you pull the thread and over and then even the whole sweater falls apart. Yeah. And also, I mean, um, this isn't, this has nothing to do with like the number of kids you have, right? Like I think that some people can have a big family and still figure it out. I mean, it takes more work, but, uh, yeah, I mean the American nightmare, I just think has so much to do with following blindly what you were told which I think even people in our generation, I, I've worked with a lot of clients who basically did that um, and then woke up at, let's say, like, you know, 30 to 40 and were like, you know, what the fuck? I'm miserable. I did everything I was supposed to do and I'm still unhappy. Why? Right. And I've heard that story in some variation yeah. or another so many times. A lot and of our so, clients. Yeah, exactly. And so um, that's what I mean about a generational shift. Not that our generation hasn't necessarily gone down the same steps, but that we're waking up a lot younger and being like, what the fuck? Like, this is not what I signed up for. I'm done. I'm changing this. Um, and that, to me, I think feels different because, I don't know, I, I think the generations prior to us just didn't think that they had that option. Or maybe they just didn't because they had less access to stuff. Well, things are definitely changing now. Um, but one thing that I, I think is still not changing, um, I think a lot of people are still holding on to uh, what they think is the American dream, and that is uh, multiple kids, you know, the uh, running toward the picket fence, marriage. What, what is that? 2.2 kids, marriage, matching cars, mm-hmm. you know. And if you want a big family that's that's your truth that's fair i i see the value in that i mean having i could see having multiple kids and and coming home to a big family and the kids having seven siblings of course i mean i i get all that but if you're doing it to run to escape or because it's it's like that's what your idea of the american dream is um I think it's a trap, you know? Well, it's not only a trap. I mean, I think what I've seen so often in clients is when people have children because it's their only source of joy. I think that's when this idea of having big family, it's not to judge having big families. It's to say like, what's what's the purpose behind having a big family? Like, I think any decision that we make and having children is a decision. I think any decision we make, there needs to be some kind of awareness around the motivation um, and I think for a lot of people, the motivation is around, I, f- I don't find joy anywhere else. 
Um, you know, I'm miserable in my life. My relationship sucks. I hate my job, whatever. And so I'm going to have a bunch of kids because that's going to bring me joy. And that I think is part of that sweater unraveling because once you realize that your children are not yours, you do not own them. They come through you, but they are not yours. Um, and they start dis- differentiating, which they will. Um, that reality kind of explodes in your face and then you're left again with only yourself and no joy. And I think it would be so much more beneficial for so many people when they're at that decision stage, that crossroads to consider the motivation and, and potentially think about how and where they could self-reflect and do that work to bring joy into their life without having, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm saying all this with a lot of awareness that I know it sounds like judgmental and I don't mean it to sound judgmental because like you were saying, like, do you, like if you want a big family, I mean, by all means, I just think it's important to also be aware of your motivations for that. Yes. Um, so my story, you know, I, I, I tried to run toward the picket fence. I tried to um, trace that what I thought was the American dream. I got married at 29 uh, we got a dog. We got a place. Uh, you know, I I would try to try to put my passions aside to be the quote unquote breadwinner and make money. And you know, I thought that's what a man looked like. And uh, she wanted a child. I didn't. And then I wanted a child, and she didn't. So it didn't line up. But if we had children, because we also had problems in our marriage, that's kind of what. That's like the quintessential, you know, and then suddenly you're in a marriage and you stay in it for the, for the children. And then, you know, and we all, we all know how that story ends. So what's different about me in my life today is I'm 49. My child is two. Our child is two. Um, we're not married. We're talking about marriage, right? Um, but it, it doesn't hang on the shoulds that society says um, should happen at a certain time and, and, and in this in this order. Right. And I think that um, that's been really important to us, like as we've moved forward every step. I mean, I'll speak for myself, even before meeting you, every step of the way for me, I've been very probably are like my mid twenties when I first started doing a lot of inner work, it's been like, I've been super aware of like, what's my motivation for this almost to the point of like rebellion. Like I refuse to do this and this because it's what I've, I've been told that I have to do or that I should do. And there has been like a rebellious streak in me that said like, fuck that. I'm not doing that. And so, you know, I never wanted to get married. I never wanted to have kids. Like I just was so anti all of it. Um, and even after meeting you and even after, making a very, very conscious decision to have a child. Um, you know, we, we accidentally got pregnant, miscarried, and then made a very conscious decision after that to have one. Um, I felt like I had so much thought. There was so much thought that went into that. Um, and it was a decision that I made that just didn't feel – it was a decision that I made that came from me. It just didn't feel like it was put on me. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know where I'm going with that. I just, I'm just reflecting on the fact that I think my whole life there's been this rebellious streak without even knowing it against that whole like white picket fence. Yeah. Um, I'm just aware of that. So you never, you never ran toward it? No, I, I was terrified of it. I, I, not only did I not run toward it, uh, run toward it, I threw eggs at it. Like I, I you, hated the idea of it. You, did you hate the idea of it because in your own life growing up, there was never one, meaning, um, 
you know, uh, uh, no positive, uh, I guess she had a positive male role model, but like, um, single mom, single mom, um, divorced, divorced, um, uh, um, you know, uh, financially struggling, struggling yeah. like all, all of the, you know, the opposite of the, the, well, I think that, yeah, I think that part of it was I had friends, I had a couple friends who had that like quintessential home and, because I was close friends with them, I saw that it was like kind of bullshit behind closed doors. Um, I was very distrustful of the whole, like of just men in general because of my relationship with, or I should say lack thereof with my father. Um, and I think that also I grew up in a house with not just one woman, but I think a family of women who were, uh, without even knowing it, fiercely, I would say, um, feminist but when I say feminist I mean kind of feminist movement of the 70s and 80s which meant in order to be treated like equals we have to act like men and so it was very like individualistic fuck men we don't need men uh men are useless you know good for nothings blah 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 we could do it on our own and I think that that message really uh stuck with me and really kind of shaped the way I I looked at relationships obviously looked at men um but also looked at like what I wanted my life to be we have a Um, question so if the message you absorbed growing up was and this was around you was um fuck men men always leave or men whatever um, you know, um, this is what power filled looks like. Mm-hmm. How did that roll into relationships? Like what was your behavior because of those underlining beliefs? Well, it was, it, what's interesting is that it's like, it was a lot of codependency because it was a lot of like the lip service. I mean, whether it was like verbally put this way or not, the lip service was very like, fuck men, we can do this on our own. Um, I've, I come from a family of almost all women, mm-hmm. but everybody was in relationships and I would say the vast majority of those relationships weren't healthy. And so there was just a lot of codependency that I saw growing up. Um, and so a lot of it was like, you know, just snarky comments and like just unhealthiness. I don't know. Um, and so I think I really struggled in – like I can look at my college relationship that was like my first long, you know, my first true love. And I know that I had those two sides of me. Like – I wanted him to love me so badly and it was a really deep love, but I just, I needed it. Like my abandonment wound, I was so terrified that he would leave and I would do anything to keep him there. And at the same time, I would say shit or do shit that was so dismissive and so like, whatever, I don't fucking need you. Um, That contradicted, I think, that like deep desire to have him stay close and, you, I, and I just see that pattern I think I, I've played that a pattern on a few times in my life do you did you respect him I did actually because I feel like someone who grew up in that environment wouldn't respect men in general um yeah I don't know I mean I I think I I respected him but I think that one of the patterns that I've always had in relationships has been to fall in love with someone's potential So I have a tendency to meet men who are wildly talented, um, super smart, whatever it is that their specific kind of area of passion is, um, but are very like um, self-sabotaging in a lot of ways. 
And so I get myself, I've always gotten myself into relationships with men where it would be like, it's almost like that self-sabotaging would give me a reason to do the whole like, whatever. Does that make sense? Yeah, but but, um, were you attracted to men who had potential because then it could give you a cape? Meaning a lot of people date potential because it's like flipping houses. They like fixing them up and and then feeling the worth of transforming something to you know to to meet someone who's got potential and because they loved you and you love them they're better because of it no i don't think for me it was a fix-up thing i think a fixer-upper thing i think it was um if i really like i'm honest with myself i actually think it was more about because i met them each of them i met i think when they were at their best right which we all like when we first meet people we kind of put our best foot forward and I think I fell in I think what happens is I fall in love with them when they're at their best and then I can't tolerate it when they're at their worst. So I have a really hard time with um That to me that's not reality. Yeah, that that's not um um I'm pausing because I think I'm kinda like that. That's not dating people with potential to fix them up. That's actually um filling projection. in blanks. It's projection. Yeah, it's not it's not it's a refusal to see um the 360, the yeah. truth, you know, is what I say, the, the well, dirt talk on the, the floor. If I go into a relationship seeing somebody in the 360, it wouldn't be such a fall from grace. Like, yes, we all meet people. We all put our, we all put ourselves our best foot forward. We put each other on pedestals, blah, blah, blah. But I became very aware. I actually talk about this in the book. It's funny because I haven't thought about this since I probably wrote it, where when you and I first started dating and we had a lot of turbulence in the beginning and you did a lot of like push pull Mm -hmm. kind of what I felt was like very wishy-washy and like you would say one thing but you would kind of do another like it was very strange to me and and I that was the first time in my life that I realized this pattern and what this pattern is is it's like dating with it's like dating through projection right like this is who you present yourself as I I don't I almost like I can't have there's no capacity for you to be anything less I think it's also more amplified um, because I'm so active on social media. And so it's easy. Well, but every one of the men that I've dated, well, not every one of them, but three out of four men that I would say were like the serious relationships in my life, you being one of those, were all fairly well known in their own arena. Right. So so what you're you're doing, you're falling in love with the poster, right? You're falling in love with the idea of someone or who someone could be, the the projection and then when you see that they are flawed or ambivalent or, you know, um, leave coffee grounds on the table or whatever it is, um, it, it, it kind of – you fall off the expectation cliff. You're disappointed. The fantasy bubble pops. Yeah, and I think that because I struggle with so much perfectionism, I think a lot of that was part of it too. It's like I held myself up to such a high standard um, and I pushed myself so hard to be – all the things to all the people, be the best I could possibly be in every, you know, just never be anything but perfect um, to the point of exhaustion and burnout, honestly, that it almost like angered me when they didn't do the same. Does that make sense? Yeah. Not that it's right. I'm just saying that's what I've realized is like my, was like a pattern of mine growing up. So the two words I'm seeing is projection and expectation. Mm-hmm. But it's all about myself, right? 
it's always about you. It, it, this is the thing. It's never, it's never, what do they say? It's like, it's never about you. It's always about them. I mean, in this situation, what I'm saying is that it's like, it was all about me. It wasn't about them um, or you. It's, it was all my own shit, right? And so much of my work around our relationship, I mean, obviously once we got through the first part and I, I felt safe because ambivalence does cause a lot of feelings of unsafe, um, being unsafe, but so much of my work in this relationship has been my work around my my perfectionism because working on my own perfectionism then translates outward into being able to see you in your humanity see logan and her humanity right but if i can't see myself in my humanity and accept myself in that i can't accept anybody else in theirs so a lot of what i've worked on just in relationship with you has actually been my own stuff around perfectionism right you know, one of my big revelations with us is um, the power of consistency, meaning yeah. um, even though there's turbulence and there are questions and there's, you know, everyone's on their inner journey, um, of course, there's resistance. If you are consistent, both people, you, you know, um, I mean, as humans, right, we, we all we all are, we are all inconsistent in some ways just because we're complicated human beings. But generally speaking, if you are consistent, um, it almost turns into a mirror. Like if you're consistent enough, truth is revealed. You start having revelations. And then for me, um, the consistency actually draws me in more, uh, not just because it builds trust, but – I start to appreciate and see things, uh, beautiful things that I didn't notice before. Can you clarify consistency? So you mean consistency in behavior and action and thought and all of them? Yeah, like well, also over time. So mm-hmm. uh, we've been together four years, mm-hmm. right? I think it took me four years to have this, you know, uh, deep relationship with you. I don't think I could have done it in one year. Mm-hmm. I needed consistency over four years um, for me to see things. I mean, even like in the book, you know, finding beauty in the contrast. A lot of times when there's contrast, we don't find beauty. We we accept it as, oh, it's not a good fit. Mm-hmm. But if you're consistent, you're in it, you actually start to notice and ap- appreciate. You start to appreciate things. You start to find value. Um, so when I'm in a good space, I can find value in it. When I'm, when I'm in a bad space is when it irritates me. Well, that's, that's, why, that's why I'm saying <laughs> consistency. If, if you're in a bad place more than good, then that's right. – what I mean by consistency is that it has to be cumulatively yeah. a, a positive experience or else we wouldn't if – we, if we had more negative experiences than positive, what No, no, no. I mean we when I'm in a bad place personally, nothing to do with you, oh, okay. I find the contrast – irritating when i'm in a good place is when i can appreciate the contrast so again well, well, when we're in a us. bad place we're just reacting and it's almost like when we're in a bad place kind of tools go out the window mm-hmm. but i just think even that perspective of beauty and the contrast and appreciating the contrast like i know there's so much more meaning to the fact that you and i are so opposite in so many ways yeah, so here, that's a good example. Okay, so in the beginning, because we are opposite, right, whether we're talking about whatever, humor, style, I mean, I don't know, whatever, opposites, uh, 
I I saw that as a hash mark, mm-hmm. as oh maybe this isn't a good fit or maybe you know, which I think a lot of people do. Right. Over time, if consistent, consistent I now in what just generally speaking, together, loyal, loving with compassion, so showing up, safe space, a safe space consistently, okay, okay. right? Over time, now I find your humor adorable now i find your now i find your humor she just made a weird face at me i don't think he does at all i don't i don't mean adorable like patronizing but now i find it i mean i may not laugh he regularly just looks at me with a blank face right that's and but like i can totally see him judging me when i show him something well okay so so the blank face is my There's humor no, you don't think no the, the deadpan blank face is my humor i'm very dry but inside i find what you find funny like adorable I, I i i appreciate it now mm-hmm. where before it's like it's like okay here it's like this okay if if you have a a, a song that you, that changed your life mm-hmm. and a friend says i can't stand that song <laughs> it's like i mean i don't think it's, it's like gonna somebody be a your puppy yeah it's like you people take that very personally over time someone can be like okay it's not my favorite song but i i see the what you see in it mm-hmm. right and that happens in relationships with a consistent safe space where what you were kind of running from, you not only accept, but you embrace and maybe get to a point where you actually find beauty in it, you know? So I think that, that for me, um, and it does take time. I mean, it took, it took me four years, but, uh, and and in four years, this is one of the longest relationships I've been in because there's been, most of my relationships have been like three years. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I, one of my revelations in, in us is um, the power of consistency, and, and it's it's actually it's actually fair because you've earned that. It's kind of the gift from the universe by being together and being you know working on the relationship and each other for the longer you the, the longer you work on the relationship and the more consistent you are, um, the more appreciation you'll have for. The relationship and each other it's kind of the gift of being con- consistent mm-hmm. i'm thinking yeah i mean i i agree with everything you're saying i mean i i'm i'm coming back to this idea like i said a minute ago about like i just think that that's e- at, that's easier to access which whatever i guess it all is it's easier to access when you're in a good space and i think that's so many people are in relationships, like you say, like walking reactions. And I think that just so, so much of my, my revelations, I guess, have been around how much is about me, you know, like it's not about the other person. It's like all about me and not in like a selfish way, but in like a, I have to own my shit kind of way. Um, and so when I am in those moments, because I mean, let's be real, it's not like I appreciate the beauty and the contrast all the time, right? Neither do you. When I'm in those spaces, I'm not appreciating it. It it is usually an indication to me that I have to like slow down, go inward, check in what's going on, you know. Would would you say that when you're not in a good place and the contrast now is flipping the magnet, now you're running, is that the part of you that grew up where, you know, men are, I could do this by myself. Men are uh, whatever disposable. You know that that whole message you got growing up. Maybe that that is what's activated. 
that is what's turned up when you're not in a good place. And then when you're in a good place, all of those things are just false beliefs. I don't know if it's that specific message that gets activated or if it's more just like, uh, I can do this myself. So what I think what, what happens for me is that when I'm in a not so great space, and when I'm in a not so great space, so that usually comes from doing too much for other people and not enough for myself, not asking for needs to be met, not speaking up. So holding resentments, right? So it becomes like a lot of like emotional um, burden. Like I'm carrying a lot emotionally and I'm not speaking up or asking for help, right? That's what it looks like when I'm in a quote unquote not so good space. Well, there's no way you could appreciate inequality <laughs> if you have resent resentment towards that person right but so if i'm in a if i'm in a weird space right and i've let myself get there and i say let myself get there because it is a daily practice for me to not let myself get there because that feels more normal than not so if i've let myself get there and i'm in a weird space then what usually where my brain goes is what's the point why bother I can just do it by myself. I can do everything by myself. I'm alone. I'm in this alone. You know, it's that whole like I'm by myself storyline. And that's the protection. That's the self-preservation because that's it's actually easier for me to stay in that space than it is to actually do the hard thing, break the habits and unravel, ask for help, communicate to you my needs, tell you I need help. I need a break from Logan you know, this need isn't being met, whatever the thing is, like, that's actually harder for me. And so I don't know if I'm being clear. I I don't know if I have a point, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. What's interesting to me is um, what activates us. And when I say us, I'm talking about everyone, not just, just Vanessa and I. What activates us? Where is that coming from? Usually it is coming from our story, our past, how we were raised, all of that. And then that's kind of where the road forks. And if you do nothing, nothing will change and you're just repeating and cementing old old patterns. Um, but if you realize where it's coming from and kind of – and this is why you know stillness is important, meditation, everything that can create any kind of emotional speed bump. And then you actually say, oh, I, I understand what's happening. I'm – detaching because i feel resentment and when i feel resentment i can't appreciate anything about john mm-hmm. now i see his, his stains mm-hmm. and no there's no beauty in the contrast there there is only you know whatever um annoyance annoyance and, yeah, and uh, you know he's not this judgment he's judgment and so that's where people start drifting and pushing people away um so when you actually see oh wait i'm resenting okay so i got to do what's hard meaning ask for help or ask for time or ask for him to take logan or ask for him to do the dishes whatever it is because you grew up fast and you had to take care of people and you're not used to that uh that's the harder thing to do okay i'm gonna do that because to me that is growth not yeah, only personal growth, but for the relationship. So I'm using your your story yeah, as, as an example. I'm very, very into this idea. And, and people who have either worked with me as individual clients, people who have taken my classes in the lab, you know, I, I'm very like blunt about this stuff. I don't sugarcoat stuff. I mean, I, I am very, very into this idea of like radical self 
oh God, I don't know what the term, I should, I should coin this though. <laughs> like taking responsibility, right? So like radical responsibility. Okay. TM, I'm trademarking that. Meaning. I don't know if there's a hook to that. Radical R, R squared. Radical responsibility, meaning in every situation, what is your hundred percent? Right now, I'm not saying own their hundred percent. Like I am also very boundaried around what I'm going to take. That's somebody else's responsibility because I did that for a long time in a last relationship, and I've put that down. I do not carry that anymore. But I, my first go to, and hey, maybe this is my perfectionism, but my first go to is I need to sit with myself and I need to own my shit. And what am I doing or not doing that is causing me to feel this way? That is causing me to go into this this hamster wheel of negative thinking that is causing me to be in this like not so great space that's causing me to detach like whatever it is um and i think that well let's exactly be honest most people and um previous versions of us have not been that way no. most people are not like that most Everybody people the finger right most always. people are like um so like for using that example instead of you saying okay I'm, i feel myself resenting that's something i need to work on um what you what most people would do is Blame me. Right. Well, or hold the resentment. Right. Don't like, blame me. Well, of course I'm resentful. You know, he doesn't pick up his socks. Like that kind of shit, you know? Like, well, how can I, how can you expect me not to be resentful? Like, I do X, this is a kind of like what I hear a lot, you know? It's like, um, but I've asked him 10 times to pick up his socks and he still does it. Right. And so I get it. I mean, I, I hear that side of the conversation too. Like, if you're, if you're, having a dialogue with somebody about something specific and it feels like they don't quote unquote care enough to, to as she's saying pick up his socks i'm already thinking of comebacks on what she does that i can start By the way, unloading that's not a thing about you like you don't leave your socks i mean very rarely i'm just using that because that's kind of like the generic example but um yeah i mean i, I it's such, it's a it's a tough it's a tough dance because there's a lot of like people are like almost like i i deserve this resentment like there's a lot of attachment to our suffering, right? Like I deserve to have this attach, uh, this resentment because this person is doing this thing to bother me. And this is where we get into the radical responsibility of like no one does anything purposely to bother you. Well, I mean, of course there are some assholes that do. This is – you still have to stop and say I'm choosing to be resentful over this. Like how can I take 100% ownership in specific – like in my specific area of this – Take responsibility for my part. So like, am I expressing my needs clearly? Am I, you know, how am I communicating to my partner that I need their help? Or am I communicating to my partner that I need their help? In with what ways am I communicating to my partner? So most people don't do that because they feel like, well, I'm not going to go first. He's yeah. not doing shit. Why should I? Yeah. Right? So tug of war like you how, do you how do you do that? How do you say to yourself, okay, this is my responsibility. I'm going to... Um, radically accept responsibility no no there were two r's radical radically oh, radical, yeah i'm gonna be radically responsible mm-hmm. and you know uh, make my side of the bed how do you do that without resentment because most people that's where they drop the ball um, and maybe it's hard for you too yeah of course it's hard i mean i'm i'm a wild codependent or at least in recovery but so here, here's Redman is like my middle name. So here's my tip as we move into the third act of this episode, and then we have to bring it home. Um, my tip would be bring it back to you and who you want to be and how you want to show up and what you're bringing to the table. I think most people um, they don't want to do something because they think they're giving their partner something. 
So if you, oh my God, yeah. if you forgive your partner or if you clean up this mess for your partner or if you go down on your partner or if you – whatever, you're giving them something. Well, everything is done with some kind of um, – it's transactional. Yeah, it becomes transactional. But, if, but, but instead, if you say, okay, I'm going to make this change. I'm going to – in this case, I'm going to be radically responsible because um, it's just it's, – it's for me. It has nothing to do with my partner. It's how I want to show up in the world, not just in this relationship but just with everyone. Um, this is what I want to change, right? Then, then if you make it about you, then there's more motivation and then, if, and then it takes you out of this whole transactional thing. Mm-hmm. And then there's less pressure on you expecting something um, for your partner to change about him or herself. So let's keep up with this like silly example, right? Just because we're on this track. So we're talking about like the, the partner leaving the dirty socks. And here's the thing. They got, we also have to take into account there is a a real statistical difference around the gender, especially if we're talking like heteronormative couples, the kind of gendered um, division of labor in the household, right? It still exists. It's a thing. It needs to be named. I'm not saying that it's not a thing. Um, and it, when it comes to like the mental load and the emotional load of a household, also statistically shown, obviously women carry much more of that too. But if we're using that as an example and it's like how do I – say the thing and own my like own my part not hold on to resentment etc cetera, etc cetera. it might look like this and and this is not easy and i'm i'm going to kind of like talk this out as as i'm kind of thinking it so it might look like listen joe i have to talk to you about something right bob steve whoever <laughs> i have to talk to you about something you know i realize that i've been like nagging you a lot about the socks. I also realized that I've been carrying a lot of resentment. Like I feel myself being angry and resentful every time I pick up these socks. And I have to tell you, I've sat with it and I've thought about it. It's not actually about the socks. It's like, it's bigger than the socks. I I feel like you don't respect my time. I feel like, you know, the socks to me, it's almost like it just feels deeper. It feels like you don't, you don't think that I bring value to the table, right? Like go into what it is that it brings up for you. Because like you said, it's almost always related back to the childhood, to something deeper, something bigger. Can you get to that? Can you find the words to express what the dirty socks on the floor are actually triggering in you or bringing up for you? Can you be vulnerable enough to express that to the person? And then can you very clearly articulate the need? Meaning, it's really important to me that I feel like we're an equal partnership and I, I really need you to just be more mindful and try to help me more around the house. And so because of that, I'm actually going to stop picking up your socks. And I'm not going to hold resentment about it, i.e. that's a practice. I'm, I'm just going to stop because every time I do, it pisses me off. And I'm going to stop. Now your next part of that is you've got to just stop and not hold the resentment if that person forgets or if that person screws up and leaves them for two days um, well, that's what's hard yes, is that's, that's the like not holding part. the yeah that's the you know what that's is that's as hard as when when there's infidelity and oh, yeah. and someone says so that's that's as hard as when there's infidelity and you don't use that as a card in a fight right. or hang it over <laughs> anyone's head but you say this happened to us I don't blame you because I've chosen to forgive you it's so hard to to hold on to that you yeah, know yeah because it's a daily practice even in that more extreme example that you're giving i mean this idea of forgiving forgiveness is a daily commitment you don't just forgive somebody one time and then it's like okay you're forgiven i mean it really is like it's a it's a daily commitment that i have to make every day to say i am going to choose to forgive i'm going to choose 
to take responsibility for what is mine, let them take responsibility for what is theirs, and choose to not hold on to resentment. Like that is not for everybody, but for a lot of people that are wired the way I'm wired, a lot more codependent, it is a daily mantra. It can be a minute by minute mantra sometimes. It's not about the socks. It's your feet. They're ugly. I want you to put the socks back on. I can't stand. I can't stand your feet. (laughs) Anyway, thank you for listening. And, um, Vanessa and I, every Monday on my podcast, um, we create a, di- a longer dialogue. So whether we're interviewing guests or it's just us talking on the couch, uh, we try to push these out under a series called It's Not Me, It's You, which is also the title of our new book. And sometimes we're in the garage um, with multiple cameras in our face, which Vanessa loves. And other times we are on the couch um, yawning after the baby goes yawning and exhausted with drool on our face and spaghetti stains. Think about your relationship or if you're not in one, um, relationships you have been in and think about the patterns. And And your radical responsibility, y'all. Change – not change. Challenge yourself to see if you can um, make a left instead of a right when that road forks. Thank you for listening. Be well.